Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, thank you, choir and orchestra and everyone for leading us in worship. Uh, wasn't that just wonderful this morning again? We, uh, a happy resurrection weekend to everyone. Uh, I know everyone calls it Easter these days, but Easter is for people who are into uh, chocolate bunnies and egg hunts, and we're here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, today I want to talk to you about the amazing grace of God. Grace is one of the central truths of the Christian faith. It's one of the greatest gifts of Good Friday and also of Resurrection Sunday. Dr. C.S. Lewis, a former professor at Oxford and Cambridge University, once said that the greatest and most unique gift that Christ came to give us is that of grace. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these requires one to earn the approval of God. Only Christianity makes God's love unconditional. And so what is the grace of God all about? Well, Jesus taught about that various times. Uh, through the, uh, the, the Gospels, but in Matthew 20, he told a story or a parable to help us understand the grace of God. It's a story about a man who owned a large vineyard, a story that likely would have taken place during the great grape harvest season in September in ancient Israel. The landowner had a vineyard full of grapes that needed to be harvested quickly uh, before the rainy season uh, came. And so very early one morning, he went to the town market, a place where people typically gathered, a place where you could uh, not only purchase food and an assortment of other products and supplies, but also a place where you could hire people looking for work. When the landowner arrived, probably at 5.30 in the morning, he hired all those who were there looking for work. He asked them how much they would like to receive for a full day's work, and they agreed on the going rate of that day, which was a denarius. The landowner said, you give me a full day's work, and I'm going to give you a full day's pay. And they were all happy with the arrangement and began working in his vineyard, at 6 a.m. Now the landowner knew that if he was going to get his harvest in quickly, he needed more workers. And so every three hours or so, at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3 p.m., he went back to the market and hired workers who had gathered there. He even hired a few workers an hour or so before quitting time. And in each case, he promised to pay them a fair wage to work for him the portion of the day. Now, Levitical law stated that you had to give a worker his pay at the end of the workday. And the reason for that is, is that, of course, those days they had no banks. There was no savings. And so in order for a person to provide for food and the immediate 
immediate needs of uh, their family, they need to get paid at the end of every day. And so that is what this owner did. Only he did it in a highly unusual way. Instead of paying those who had worked the longest first, he began paying those who started work an hour before quitting time. And so, to everyone's shock, he paid them a full day's pay, a denarius. Those who had worked three hours, six hours, nine hours, he also paid a full day's wage. And then he came to those who had worked the full shift of 12 hours. And verse 10 tells us how they reacted. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now the landowner was troubled by their response. And so he asked them, before you began work this morning, didn't you agree to work the entire day for the going rate of a denarius? And they mumbled, well, yeah. The truth is, he said, you got exactly what we agreed upon. You're not upset that you got less than you deserve. You're upset because the other workers got more than they deserve. And you know what, said the landowner? You're absolutely right. They did get more than they deserved. I chose to be gracious to them. But remember, folks, it's my vineyard and it's my money. And if I want to be generous with those who don't deserve it, that's my prerogative. I did you no injustice. I treated you fairly. I paid you exactly what we had agreed upon. I simply chose to be exceedingly generous with these others. Now this parable teaches us several things about God's grace. First of all, God's grace is a gift. You probably noticed that Jesus' that Jesus' story makes no economic sense, but that was his intent. Grace is not about counting. It's not about finishing first or last. It's not about something we work to achieve. It's not about well, Lord, look at all the work I did. I worked all my life for you. Surely I've got more coming. Grace is a gift. Now, to fully understand grace, we need to examine the relationship between justice, mercy, and grace. To help us understand that difference between those three, let's say that you're going on a short holiday to British Columbia for a few days. Now, you can't wait to get there, so you're driving 20 kilometers over the speed limit, which is the regular highway speed here in Alberta. But like thousands of other Albertans, you forgot. Or maybe you wanted to forget. And when you know it, you get pulled over. 
an officer comes up to you. Let's freeze frame that for a moment. What do you deserve? While you were speeding, so you deserve justice, correct? So justice would be served if the police officer wrote you a ticket and then sent you on your way. But what if he gave you mercy? Given the state of relations between our Alberta and BC governments of late, I doubt that he would. <laughs> but what if he did? What would mercy look like? Well, if he said, you know what, even though you are guilty of speeding, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to forgive you. That would be mercy. Mercy is not giving you the ticket that you deserve. You deserve justice, but instead, he's chosen to give you mercy. Now, mercy is wonderful, but grace is even better than mercy. I'm going to give you a person. <clears throat> so let's just say that uh, what would grace look like in this particular illustration? Grace would be that officer saying to you, you know what? You're the thousandth Alberta, Albertan that I've stopped for speeding this year. And it dawned on me the other day that you Alberta speeders are not only keeping our BC economy afloat, <laughs> but you're also paying for my salary. And so instead of doing justice and giving you a $100 ticket today, I've decided to do far more beyond that, far more beyond what you deserve. I'm going to give you a personal check for me for $100. Here you go. Have a nice day. Now, that unexpected, totally undeserved cash gift would be grace. Grace isn't just being forgiven for what you deserve. It's actually receiving far more than you deserve. And that was Jesus' point in the story that he told here in Matthew 20. God dispenses gifts not wages for good works. None of us gets to heaven on the basis of our attempts to be good. For none of us comes even close to satisfying God's standard of righteousness. Our eternal destination and our relationship with Him is not based on what we do for Him but on what he has done for us by his grace on the cross of Calvary. All we can do is humble ourselves, accept his grace, and then live fully in his grace. Like a loving groom, God doesn't want your performance. No, he wants you. He wants your genuine friendship, your devotion. That's the first truth we see taught here. God's grace is a gift. The second truth this parable teaches us is God's grace may seem unfair. Let me ask you, have you ever struggled with the person who's committed a heinous crime and then you hear that this person put their faith in Christ? 
They repented. They were baptized. They started life over. Or let's bring it closer to home. Have you ever struggled extending grace to a business partner who defrauded you? To a fellow employee who, for their own benefit, threw you under the bus? Or for the parent who deserted you or just plain neglected you? Now, of course, when people make selfish decisions, they're there are often consequences associated with those decisions. If they commit a crime, well, they must be brought to justice. But even when they have paid for the crime, isn't it true that often we keep them locked up in a prison of our own making? We just sort of refuse to extend grace to them. They just are three, four, five notches lower from now on. Now, we feel that tension within us in large part because we're made in God's image. And as a result, we have this deep sense of justice and fairness built into the fabric of our lives. And God's grace, as Jesus describes it here in this parable, seems to be utterly unfair. Those guys worked one hour and you paid them as much as me. I worked 12 hours in the heat of the sun. It's not fair. And you're right, of course. It's not fair. That's what grace is. It's given to those who don't deserve it. Now please understand, God's not unfair with any of us in the things that matter. He has provided us with a way to come to right relationship with him through faith in Christ. To live forever with him in heaven. It's the greatest gift we'll ever receive in this life and it's available to all of us. Like the workers in the vineyard, God treats us all fairly. However, even though God treats us all fairly in terms of matters of the next life, because he is sovereign, he is not obligated to treat us all the same in this life. And so when we compare ourselves with others and see that's what happens, we begin to compare our lot in life with someone else's. And when we think their situation is a lot better than ours, we begin to have an issue with God and just say, hey, wait a minute. You don't seem to be a very good God. Why aren't you treating me as well as you're treating them? And that's another whole theological discussion. We won't go there today. But we find ourselves comparing ourselves with others and we conclude that God is unfair. Especially when he seems to bless those who, from our perspective, are less deserving of the blessings and grace that we are. Because look how faithful we've been. And it is in this sense that grace seems to be unfair. You see, most people can accept an exacting eye for an eye God. You know, a God who keeps tabs and who rewards the good and punishes the bad. By the way, that's a definition of religion. Do good and you'll get rewarded. Do bad, you got trouble coming, buddy. But our God won't be put into a neatly wrapped box of predictability. 
Because time and time again, we're reminded in the scriptures that God chooses to act outrageously gracious to individuals who least deserve it. For example, think back to the incident we read about in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. When a group of smug religious leaders caught a woman in the act of adultery, clearly, they didn't care about her at all. I mean, they didn't try to respect her dignity in the least by bringing this matter to Jesus in private. No, they just totally humiliated her. They made a public spectacle of her, told everyone they knew, about her sin. Now she knew that she was guilty. She had clearly broken one of the commandments and the judgment for adultery in that day was stoning. It was death by stoning. The religious leaders dragged her and threw her down at the feet of Jesus fully expecting him to throw the book at her. And yet Jesus calmly squatted down and began to write something in the sand. And a lot of Bible scholars believe what he wrote in the sand were the names of various sins. And then he said this, He who is without sin among you, just lying right up here, Every one of you who is without sin, line right up here with your stone and go ahead and start throwing. In doing this, you see, he caused them to come face to face with an important principle. If they were going to set themselves as worthy to administer divine judgment, they had to be without sin themselves and yet they weren't because all of us are sinners Romans 3.23 says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God the perfection of God in fact for those who would say oh I don't know about that 1 John goes even further and says in, in, in chapter 1 verse 8 if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves we're fooling ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, Rabbi Zacharias, he defines sin as violating the purpose for which we were created. When a car, for example, is used to kill people rather than transport people, that car's purpose has been violated. And so clearly the adulterer and the murderer, the rapist, have violated the purpose for which they were created. But you see, the liar, the gossip, the slanderer have also violated their God-given purpose. And that rattles some of us because while we fully expect God to deal harshly with the molesters and the murderers, we often fail to realize that the sins that we think are relatively minor are also a crime against a holy God and they need to be paid for. In short, we're all guilty. We've all fallen short of God's glory and his divine purpose for us. We all need grace. Well, those who came wanting Jesus to cross-examine this woman, 
dropped their stones. And they left realizing that they'd been cross-examined by Jesus. And finally, there's only two people left in this makeshift courtroom, and it's the woman and Jesus. And Jesus asks her, where are your accusers? Have they not condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And then Jesus makes a statement I hope rivets itself into each of our minds. He said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus gives her a new start because he loves to be outrageously gracious to the brokenhearted. Not to those who are proud and self-righteous and think that they're better and more deserving of God's grace, but those who are humble enough to acknowledge their sin and their need for grace. The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The third truth we see here in this parable is that God's grace is costly. Something that we're inclined to overlook in this parable is that the owner was not obligated in the least to pay these workers more than they deserved. He did so freely. But in doing so, it cost him far more than he would have had to pay. Grace is a gift. It's freely given. But it doesn't come out of thin air. There's always a cost that someone needs to pay. For example, my wife, Gwen, likes muscle cars. Um, we don't have one because I want her to live and uh, because I want to live. Anyway, someone hit us from behind a while ago. And while our car was being repaired, our insurance company arranged for a rental car for us, and they gave us a high-performance charger. <laughs> she wouldn't let me near that car. She drove it, correction, she tore around with it the entire time. I was in the car only one time, she was driving, I was praying. <laughs> okay, so, let's say that I got Gwen a muscle car for her birthday. It's only an illustration, hon. Only an illustration. Don't even think about it. Okay. Now, let's say on Monday, because I like muscle cars too, let's say that I take her new car out for a joyride, see what it can do. I lose control, I hit a pole, and I put a massive dent in this car. Now, <coughs> if our marriage is going to remain strong, then someone's going to have to pay to repair the car. And I think, in, from Gwen's perspective, it would be me. Now, I could pay for the damage, which would be the right and the just thing to do. But suppose I didn't do that. But instead, I just said that I was sorry. And I asked Gwen, would you please forgive me? Now, it's important to our relationship that I do sincerely say I'm sorry and that Gwen forgive me and extend grace to me for wrecking her car. But 
me genuinely saying I'm sorry and Gwen genuinely saying I forgive you won't make that dent go away. That dent still needs to be repaired. You know, I've had people ask me why Jesus had to die on the cross. I mean, well, all this business of Good Friday and the blood and the gore and all this stuff, why? I mean, God's God. Why didn't he just make a declaration to the world, you're all forgiven? Well, for the same reason, saying I'm sorry and Gwen forgiving me, though important, doesn't fix the dent in the car. You see, because of our sin, we are spiritually broken, spiritually dented and wrecked, as it were. And if we're going to be redeemed and made spiritually alive again, in car terms, if we're going to be roadworthy again, God's justice requires that our sins be paid for. Some people wonder, well, why can't I deal with my sins and regrets by just committing to be a better person going forward? Surely the good I do will outweigh the bad I've done. Well, that would be like me hoping that Gwen's car will be repaired by me committing to be the best driver in Calgary from now on. I'm never going to speed. Not going to text or talk on the phone ever while I'm driving. Someone cuts me off in traffic, you know, tells me off, communicates some sign language. I'm going to smile and wave and say, God bless you too. But here's the thing. I could win the best driver of the year award, but my amazing driving record will not have made any difference in repairing the dent in Gwen's car. Brian Clark says, this is the essence of every religion on the planet. We've just, just described it. It's believing that even though I have crashed into the holiness of God and have made a massive wreck of things, if I just do good going forward... If I just jump through the right hoops and perform the right rituals, if I just try to be a good person going forward, somehow that dent will just disappear. You see, it doesn't work that way. The dent needs to be repaired and someone's going to have to pay for it. Now, of course, when it comes to repairing a car, the solution's pretty straightforward. I'm going to have to pay for it. But in the spiritual realm, how do we adequately pay for our sins against a holy God and against others? You see, it's easy to understand how you can pay for repairing a dent in a car, but how does a person even begin to pay for a murder that they've committed? Or how do we compensate fully for the long-term effects of a lie or slander or gossip? Or resentment. The reality is we're incapable of fixing these things in our own strength. And so God does an amazing thing. Rather than giving up on us, 
God gave up his precious son, Jesus, who willingly came to earth. He took our place. He, he paid for our sins with his own blood on the cross, making it possible for us not only to be forgiven, but for our brokenness to be redeemed and for us to be made spiritually alive again with Christ. Which is why we read that just before Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. I have paid the price for man's sin once for all. Look at what Colossians 2.13 says. We've been studying this book together. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You look at that verse, is there anything there that says something that you do? It's all about what God has done for you. Folks, that's grace. Now, I know it sounds outrageous that God would love us so much to do such a thing, but that's the good news of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. When we, by faith, accept the free gift that he has given to us and we appropriate it to our lives, we find ourselves free, clear, and forgiven for our debt has been canceled. It's been wiped away. It has been nailed to the cross. No longer do we keep striving to earn the approval of God, for we already have the approval of God. God's grace is a gift. It seems unfair, and it is costly. And finally, God's grace must be received. The owner in this parable wanted to be outrageously generous to those who didn't deserve it. But he couldn't have done so unless they received the gift he wanted to give them. You see, if there is one catch to this whole matter of God's grace, it is this. It must be received. And to receive it, your hands have to be open and they have to be empty. And the Christian term for that is repentance. Sincere repentance is the doorway to grace. Repentance is humbling yourself. It's acknowledging your sin. It's getting rid of all the counterfeit gods that are in your hands that you're holding on to. It's acknowledging that you need God's grace and surrendering your life totally to him and receiving his grace by faith the way the woman caught in adultery did. You see, her accusers walked away that day without receiving God's grace because they were too proud. They were too self-righteous. They were too self-sufficient to see their need for grace. Their hands were not empty to receive the grace of God. My question is, what are you hanging on to? Whether it's anger, resentment, whether it's a counterfeit idol, what is it that you're hanging on to?
that's getting in the way of you receiving God's gift of grace in your life. I'll close with this. Max Licato tells of a time that he sat next to a mentally handicapped, a mentally challenged boy named Billy on an airline flight. Billy's opening line was one that makes every traveler jump with joy. He said, oh good, I'm glad you're sitting next to me. Sometimes I throw up. <laughs> and Billy went on to say, you know, I'm 14 and I'm going home to see my daddy. I can't wait to see him because he looks after me. I need someone to look after me, he said, because I get confused a lot. Billy was a little boy in a big body, unashamed of his needs. He didn't let the flight attendant pass by without reminding her, don't forget to look out after me because I get confused sometimes. When they brought the food, he said, don't forget to look out after me. Later, when they brought the drinks, hey, don't forget to look out after me. Lakata writes, I honestly can't think of a time that Billy didn't remind the crew that he needed attention. Lakato says, the rest of us didn't. We never asked for help. We were grown-ups, sophisticated, independent, self-reliant. You know, as I, as I read this little thing that Lakato wrote, it dawned on me that Billy, though mentally challenged, had a significant edge on most people today. He understood grace. He knew what it was like to place himself totally in the care of someone else. Well, so many people will resist ever doing that. Because you see, in our culture, mature, intelligent, sophisticated people, they don't need other people. At least, and least of all, God. Oh, don't get me wrong, they do. It's just that we like to pretend that we don't. You see, confession and surrender is a mission at need. And that is something that we just resist doing. Lakato writes, it occurred to me that Billy was the safest person on that flight. Had the plane encountered trouble, the flight attendants would have bypassed me to him. Why? He had placed himself in the care of someone else. And I ask you, friend, have you? Spiritually speaking, we are broken, we are separated from God, and we can't fix it. Jesus came and he died to pay for our sins and to fix our brokenness. He offers us a new and a full life. A life of true freedom and victory. A life of joy and peace. But you have to get off that performance ladder. You need to let go of all attempts to save yourself. And like a little child reaching up to her daddy with open hands, simply receive God's amazing grace by faith. My question is, have you placed yourself into his care by faith. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 
The Apostle Paul says, if Jesus is not alive, if he didn't rise from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. We're still in our sins and our faith is futile. If Jesus is not alive, it makes absolutely no sense to be a Christian or to believe a word of what I've said today. But if Jesus is alive, and folks, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is overwhelming. If Jesus is alive, then he is God as he claimed to be. It means that the scriptures which he authored are true. It means that his promises, his commands, his precepts in the scriptures are true. It means that he is the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus lives, it means that he loves us with an everlasting love, that he hears us, and that his grace, as we've talked about in this message, um, is the real deal and is available to not only redeem us, but also to empower us daily to live in victory and freedom. My question is how convinced are you that Jesus lives today? If you believe he lives then live like you believe it. If Jesus lives, it makes no sense to be partially surrendered to him, to keep him at a safe, comfortable distance. Follow him with full devotion. Live every day with the awareness that he is with you, wanting to walk with you, help you, guide you, empower you, to be his representative and to carry out the assignments that he gives you. If you're not convinced that Jesus lives, you owe it to yourself and to your eternity to investigate the compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What you decide about Jesus, you must understand, is going to impact not only your life, but your eternity. It's too important to ignore or to leave it for another day. Stakes are way too high, and we're fooling ourselves if we think differently. I submit to you there's only one source of hope that is absolutely, totally, irrevocably, completely reliable, and it is my Jesus. No one, no one will ever love you more than Jesus does. He died to prove how much he loves you and me. He rose again to prove that he is totally trustworthy and that he is who he said and claimed to be. Friends, I live for Jesus because he lives.
I have no doubt that he rose from the grave. I've sensed his presence in my life. I've witnessed his power at work in and through my life, but also in the life of others around me and the life of the church around the world. And I have found that he is a rock upon which you can stand, a shelter, a fortress in times of storms. He will never leave you or forsake you. My hope, friends, is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground, all other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. It's sinking sand. Would you please stand? So just take a moment. And let's ask those two questions again. Lord, what what are you saying to me? And Lord, what is it that you want me to do about it? Just take a moment right now. Respond to those two questions. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your love, for sending your precious Son to die for us, to pay for our sins, and to make it possible for us to be redeemed and made spiritually alive again with Christ. We declare today that we serve a risen Savior, and I pray, Lord, for anyone here who say they believe Jesus lives but are living like he's not. Oh, Lord, may today be the day where they surrender all to you, Live all out for you, Lord, because you are not only alive, you're worthy. You are our Lord and King. To you be all the glory. And I also pray, Lord, for those who aren't sure where they stand with you today. Lord, that they will call out to you right in their own spirit right now in faith and ask you to forgive them of their sins and their regrets and invite you, Lord, to invade their life, knowing that the same power which raised you from the dead is available to them to live in freedom and victory today and to live forever with you in glory. For we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. 